Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books and Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ritsparna Padgiri. Today, I'm going to be in conversation with Professor Eviatar Zerubabel. He is a Board of Governors Distinguished Professor of Sociology Emeritus. His main areas of interest are cognitive sociology and the sociology of time. His latest six books explored the socio-mental shape of the past, the social organization of silence and denial, the social construction of genealogical relatedness, the sociology of inattention, the phenomenology and semiotics of taken-for-grantedness, and the notion of a concept-driven sociology. His publications include several books, some of them being Patterns of Time and Hospital Life, A Sociological Perspective, The Fine Line, Making Distinctions in Everyday Life, Social Mindscapes, An Invitation to Cognitive Sociology, and Taken for Granted, The Remarkable Power of the Unremarkable. He's currently writing a book on impersonality in social life. Professor Zerubavel served from 1992 to 2001 and from 2006 to 2009 as the director of the Rajat Sociology Graduate Program. In 2002-2001, he served as the chair of the culture section of the American Sociological Association, ASA. He teaches graduate courses in cognitive sociology, time and memory, and sociological theory. In 2002, he was awarded the Society for the Study of Social Interactions George Herbert Mead Lifetime Achievement Award. In this conversation, we will talk about his latest book, Generally Speaking, An Invitation to Concept-Driven Sociology, which was published by the Oxford University Press in 2021. I'm so glad to have you here today. Welcome to this interview. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Yeah, so uh, it took me a while to read your bio note, and I just wanted to actually begin the conversation by asking the main inspiration behind, you know, writing this book for you. So uh, this goes back to my graduate studies in school when I was working on a dissertation on the sociology of time And I did my research in a hospital, but tried to make clear to my readers that I'm not doing a study of the hospital, but in a hospital, and uh, which was a difficult thing to explain because of the unconventional nature of my approach. I've been particularly influenced within sociology by the work of Georg Zimmel and the work of Irving Goffman, who also was my co-dissertation advi- dissertation co-advisor. And both of them produced fantastic research that unfortunately, without, without uh, giving readers the sense of how they did the research. So both Zimmel and Goffman 
have been and still are uh, accused by a lot of sociologists and not being uh, real researchers, quote unquote. And I wanted to, as being theorists, and I tried to show that the distinction between theorizing and researching is actually not a very useful distinction. And I wanted to spell out systematically what are the methodological principles that guided Zimmel's work and Goffman's work, and more important for me, my own work, because six of the 13 books that I published were done entirely in this uh, method that I called social pattern analysis or uh, concept-driven sociology. So that's actually my inspiration for writing the book, generally speaking, an invitation to concept-driven sociology. Right. So you've already alluded to the fact that you wanted to understand the complex and so often contested relationship between social theorizing and social research, as you've alluded to Zimmel and Goffman's works. So why do you think that, you know, this is an important intervention to make? Because otherwise you start fetishizing a distinction that is totally artificial and I find unnecessary. I find that the social theorists like Zimmel and Goffman, but even more so uh, Emil Durkheim, were researchers. uh, And Durkheim actually wrote a book called The Rules of Sociological Method, which explained how he did research. But it's a very different research. It's a much more positivist positivistic uh, research with certain propositions, hypotheses, and so on. This is very different here. And so anyway, I throughout the book, I use the term theoretical-methodological, theoretical-methodological, to show that I'm deliberately avoiding that split that is totally unproductive. Right. So uh, you also talk about the fact that, you know, theory and methodology are inseparable from each other. And you just said that you use the term theoretical methodological to convey this. So if you could talk a little bit more about it and explain to our listeners what it means. So basically, uh, there are two, two types of research that a lot of what's done in sociology falls into. And I'm talking about what is done in empirical sociology. I'm not talking about things that are more philosophical, hypothetical. I'm talking about stuff that is more empirical. Um, So the two general approaches that are usually presented are theory-driven work versus data-driven work. Theory-driven work, and I would say theory with a capital T, to distinguish it from what I'm talking about is theoretical. Theory-driven work, which you see a lot in positivism, is that you start by situating yourself in a tradition of theorizing 
about a certain particular phenomenon that you're interested in. And then you, you do a so-called literature review. You sketch the genealogy of where you are coming from, theoretically. And then you propose certain propositions, hypotheses. And you're going to test them and you do the research to test them. And the result is... You know, you, you demonstrated what your thesis is, or you failed to demonstrate, or there are certain combinations. But that's basically theory-driven research, that you start from a certain theoretical body of literature and sociology and do the research. And, uh, and then there is the second type, general type of approach, which is called data-driven, which is uh, particularly characteristic of what happens in history and in classical uh, anthropology. Um, and sociologists who do either ethnographic work or historical work fall into this, that they start with particular data you go to a particular community, you go to a particular society, group, organization, and so on. You do research, and then you try to, hopefully, you try to theorize from your findings. But you started from data, and that's true even in very theoretically oriented uh, approaches in sociology such as so what is called grounded theory where you go to the field you collect data and then from that you start uh, theorizing and what I'm talking about is something very different which is an approach that starts from concepts not from data not from theory but from concepts and I'll talk about it uh, later, but you start with a concept and you try to do what I call a social pattern analysis, whereas the theory-driven work is trying to explain the world, explain reality, and the data-driven is usually descriptive, describing reality. I'm trying to do uh, in concept-driven sociology, neither explanation nor description, but rather the analysis of particular social patterns. Right. So, interestingly, uh, I also want to know how important uh, do you think concepts are in doing sociological research and what is the concept-driven sociology that you are proposing? They are central then as I start the book, the book starts with a chapter on what I call focusing, which is training the researcher to start with certain concepts, a single concept or a set of concepts, and try to work from there, trying to see how reality is informed by those concepts. I want to emphasize again, it's not about hypothesizing a certain connection between the data and the, and the theory. It's not about making a particular argument, claim, and trying to prove it. Rather, it's an attempt to see, quote-unquote, patterns that you wouldn't see 
if you didn't start with concepts. So I'm talking about concepts like in my dissertation research in the 1970s, when I started, uh, when, when I studied time sociologically, the concept of time is a very vague concept. And I try to develop a family of concepts that would be related to this, like temporal coordination, uh, temporal reference, and so on. And um, when I went to the hospital, I tried to see how those concepts illuminate what I see. And they did illuminate. I started seeing things that I'd never thought of before. For example, uh, in an emergency room, I saw patients who were waiting and impatiently asking the nurse, so when will the doctor see me? And the nurse would look at the folders and uh, the files and would say something like, you are the fourth in line. There are three patients ahead of you. And the patient would say, yeah, but when will the doctor see me? And the answer was, well, you are the fourth patient in line. And what I realized is that in terms of the temporal reference framework that hospital staff were using, she gave the most precise answer that she could. But for the patient who was not versed in that temporal reference framework, three patients, four patients didn't mean anything. It could be an hour, it could be two and a half hours, and so on. What I'm saying is that I wouldn't be able to see that pattern had I not developed a conceptual framework around time, like in this case, temporal reference frameworks. So a lot of these concepts at the beginning are very vague. I'm not starting from something very clear, very specific. Nevertheless, they attach themselves to my mind like magnets and they attract information, they attract data. I start th seeing things that I would have never seen otherwise. When I worked on the fine line that you mentioned, it was a study, it was a study of making distinctions by drawing boundaries. It was a study of classification. And the word, the concept boundary, as vague as it may sound, was a very useful magnet for me because it was stuck in my mind as attracting data. And I, during the years that I worked on that book, I discovered a lot of things. I saw, quote unquote, a lot of things that I'd not, I would have never noticed otherwise. And so on. In my book, uh, The Elephant in the Room, for example, which is a study of conspiracies of silence, I developed a concept of co-denial, which has to do with denial but not denial of individuals, but rather denial of social systems. Who could be a couple, could be an organization, could be an entire society. But the metaphor of the elephant in the room was very useful for me to describe, to notice situations where several individuals starting from two and ending in millions and hundreds of millions notice certain things that they're not supposed to acknowledge that they noticed. And that's what you call a conspiracy of silence. So 
we talk around the elephant, we pretend that the elephant is not there, but it's there. And that allowed me to see tons of things that have to do with alcoholism, with uh, domestic abuse, with organizational corruption and so on, that I would have never noticed otherwise. Right. So also, uh, do you think there are special cognitive skills that would be required to practice this kind of a concept-driven sociology? Absolutely. And I actually organize the book, generally speaking, by those skills. So the first one I mentioned is focusing. The second one is generalizing. How to look at something particular and seeing it not as something particular, but as a particular illustration or example of a much more general theme. So... This is why if I study a particular conversation, I listen to a particular conversation, I want to generalize from it on conversations in general or conversations that try to avoid the elephant in the room in general and so on. The third very important uh, cognitive skill that is required for practicing concept-driven sociology is exampling which is actually using examples not exemplifying but exampling and i'll talk about it more more expensively but to actually focus what i'm doing on collecting examples of general themes of general patterns and the fourth one and i'll talk about this more and the fourth one is analogizing. You know, we think of analogy as a particular cognitive style that some people use, some people don't use. In order to do concept-driven sociology, you have to develop your analogical skills. And what it means is to see the resemblance, the similarity between things that are apparently different from one another. Okay, so for example, I mentioned conspiracies of silence around alcohol uh, consumption or uh, around organizational corruption. This is, these are two very different things. Heavy drinking and organizational corruption are very, very different. But what I'm trying to do in The Elephant in the Room is seeing the parallels between them as contexts for... co-denial. So I'm talking a lot about in the book about doing comparative research. But comparative research has come to be identified with the act of comparing in order to see differences. And what I'm talking about is comparing phenomena, not in order to see differences, but in order to see similarities. To look, for example, at the way that uh, member that Christians, for example, come to visit uh, Jerusalem as a holy city, that tells something about the origin of the religion, Christianity, and the way that lovers go to the place where they went on their first date, which is also commemorating the origins of their. Couplehood. 
couplehood and world religion, two different levels of analysis that normally you wouldn't compare. But in concept-driven sociology, if you are interested in the notion of commemorating origins, that's what you you'd be looking at. And you'd also be looking at organizations that give uh, new members an orientation and uh, going over the history of the organization and again commemorating the roots of the of the relationship right also uh, how is concept driven sociology different from other approaches of conducting sociological research i know you briefly sort of alluded to it but if you could talk a little bit more about it yeah so if i were if i were doing a theory driven with capital t theory driven work that had to do with time i would start with a concept of time i would start with theories of time and i would look at uh, if i can find in sociology or in my case i actually didn't find them in sociology i found them in psychology in physics in biology um but anyway that would be a way of starting a theory driven research where there's a certain theory about the relationship between something and something and certain temporal patterns if i were doing data driven research i would start mapping tem- mapping the temporal map of a, of a family for example following members of the family 24 hours a day 7 days a week 365 days a year and doing in a way a charting when things happen when people talk to each other when they sit to have uh, to have a meal together when they go to work and so on and so forth but it would start from collecting empirical data that are very descriptive and then inductively from that developing certain theoretical statements that's something that happens for example in not only ethnography but a grounded theory in sociology and what i'm doing is something very different because i start with a concept i don't go to the field to the data to which are my examples i don't go there before i've established a certain theoretical focus which is concept driven right so how do you think data should be understood within this framework i'm also asking because so many of our undergrads graduates today look at something as important only when they find it to be data viable so uh, you know how do you think data can be understood within this my data are basically examples when people uh, comment about my work one of the things they also always mention is the numerous examples that i use and i use examples from very different contexts that are supposed to be deliberately from very different contexts because i try to demonstrate the diversity of my sampling if i chose if i chose uh, several examples from a hospital and only that i wouldn't be able to generalize from that 
about temporal patterns in general. But if I look at examples from the hospital and from the family and from uh, monastic communities and from world religions and so on and so forth, as I did in an early book of my uh, Hidden Rhythms, uh, or, for example, in my following book, The Seven-Day Circle, which was the a book about the history and experience, the social experience of the, of the, of the week, I looked at, at, among other things, I looked at attempts to destroy the seven-day week. And two classic examples happened in the 1790s in France, after the French Revolution, and in the late 1920s in the Soviet Union, in order to maximize production in factories. Soviet Union, France, two very different social systems. 1790s, 92, and 1929, a century and a half difference between them. The context of religion, the context of of economy, very different context. But by showing how Stalin introduced the five-day week and then the six-day week, and how the French Republicans introduced the 10-day week, I looked at the similarity between the way and sometimes the reasons that they tried to destroy the seven-day week, which was associated with monotheistic religions. Okay. Um, Last question. Uh, Can it be seen as a kind of generic sociology, the concept-driven sociology that you talk of, which is also trans-contextual in scope, And do you also think that there is a need to emphasize cross-contextual commonalities in practicing this concept-driven sociology? Yeah, so I'll start from your second question, which is just what I was just talking about, trying to emphasize cross-contextual commonalities, looking at sampling my examples from different contexts, as different as I can find them, not in order to, and that's what, what I mean by, by doing it cross-contextually, but not in order to show similar uh, differences, but rather commonalities. So the result that I get is transcontextual. And that's what I mean by generic sociology, that generic rather than specific. And this is a theme that the, th- the difference between generic and specific has haunted me for years. And uh, my, my last two books exactly were on generic versus specific and taken for granted. It was about the stuff that we treat as generic and uh, what semioticians call unmarked and take it for granted. And the stuff that we treat as specific, unusual and marked. In generally speaking, that's what I'm talking about now, it's all around the tension between the specific and the generic. And the book that I've just completed now, which is called uh, Don't Take It Personally, Personalness and Impersonality in Everyday Life, it's also on the difference between viewing individuals as specific individuals or as impersonal entities that are members of certain categories that are members of. 
So, so it's a theme that has interested me for a long time. Right. Thank you so much for speaking to me today. It was an absolute pleasure to listen to you talk about your new book and concept-driven sociology. So thank you once again on behalf of New Books Network. Thank you, and it's been my pleasure as well.